This is how legends are made. Legendary. There's so many legends in this building today. Legendary. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kevin Jonas Sr., and you're listening to the legendary I Lived It podcast. Today's guest is Tony Orlando. You may know him from Tony Orlando and Don, the supergroup from the 70s, with songs like Tie a Yellow Ribbon, Knock Three Times, He Made a Difference in My Life and a Difference in Culture. Tony, welcome to the show. What an honor, first of all, to be introduced that way on your first broadcast, your first one, and an honor to be here with you. And you know how much I love you. And you know how close we've become. This is really going to be a great opportunity for all those people who, I mean, I can't remember when I first met you, Kevin, I was in awe of going to see your boys, with my daughter, Jenny. And I remember I was standing on line and Jenny was, the line was two miles long and, and, they were just starting out, really. It was the very beginning of... Right. That's right. I remember Jenny was 16 and was standing online, and your security guy is a yep. friend of my cousin, Kevin Schroeder, who's also insecure. I, I know him well. He's been with us before. Boys, right? Yes. And he says, I said, do you think maybe uh, my daughter could meet the boys? He goes, well, I'll be right back. All of a sudden, you come out. And you, and you had this look on your face like Tony Orlando, and I'm going, Kevin Jonas, and you're going, Tony Orlando, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I haven't had a hit record since Lincoln, hang on a second, I, I want to meet, my daughter wants to meet the boys, and you arranged that, and I think there could have been, there must have been about, I don't know, 400 girls that wanted to beat my daughter up, because there they were, all three of them, all of them came out, and they hugged Jenny, and we took a picture together. And that was the beginning of a wonderful friendship with our families as well, Kevin. No question. You have become a lifetime friend, but I will never forget. His name was Mike, but we called him Kamish. And Kamish came back, and he said, Mr. Jonas, Tony Orlando is standing outside with his daughter in the heat. And I went, wait the Tony Orlando? And he said, yes, sir, it's the Tony Orlando. I went out, and part of what we're doing with this show is at the core of what I am, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of great music. I'm a fan of culture and pop culture. I'm a fan of the people that were on stage like yourself that wrote the songs that were never on stage, the people behind the scenes from the record company, and the people that put the tours together. And so this show is really about what makes this industry work, and not just today and the TikTok generation that you know my artists are a part of, but the ones that have done it from the 50s and 60s and 70s and the things that happened there. And so... My goal today is to give perhaps a new audience, but especially for those like me out there that are fans, a glimpse into your life. Uh, my friend, Tony Orlando, a glimpse into your life, your heart. Thank you, Kevin. You, you know, it's a funny thing. Before we started talking on the air, you said to me, Tony, from 1960, so 60 years, if you really added up, that's seven decades Seven decades. It's hard for me to believe that because it's gone by so fast, Kevin. 
and the content of that seven years. When I think that I signed with Don Kirshner in 1960, I was the first act to sign with Epic Records, which eventually became the home of Michael Jackson and J-Lo and on and on. And they had no pop artists signed. I was 16 years old. I was in an office that had the following people in a little cubicle at 1650 Broadway, 51st Street, New York. So on the sixth floor, there was Donnie's office. And then he was paying us 50 bucks a week. Now, you take a 16-year-old in 1961 getting 50 bucks a week. It's a lot of money. Oh, and yeah. Getting us 50 bucks. And the deal was, if you make it, I recoup that money. If you don't make it, it's my loss. Pretty fair deal. Yeah, it's great. In my little cubicle, I had a piano and a guitar. Next door to me was a young songwriter just starting out, a dreamer, a teenager. His name was Neil Sedaka. <laughs> Next to him was a young performer just starting out. His name was Bobby Darren. Next to his office was a duet named Tom and Jerry. I guess you never heard of them until they changed their name to Simon and Garfunkel. Exactly. Next to them was a young singer named Connie Francis, who at the time was the, the biggest female artist of the time in the early 60s. Next to her was a guy named um, Neil Diamond. So you're talking about this office of young kids who hadn't even had a hit yet. Barry Mann, Cynthia Wilde, Carol Kane, Jerry Goffin, all of us together in this office, Ronnie Dante, Tony White, all of us together dreaming the dream that you and the boys have always had of making it in show business. And wow. when I think back that I would have been happy with 60 days in show business then, mm -hmm. that it's been 60 years, it's mind blowing. Well, take us back. I, I, I'm intrigued and I've never asked you these kind of questions before, but you signed with this legendary group and, you know, that house of writers and artists, legendary, epic, of course, legendary, and you were the first pop artist. How did you know? Because all of those kids, those New York kids, like, I went to those concerts. I cried over those songs. I was personally attached and probably had a crush on Carole King my whole life. <laughs> Like what? What brought you? How did you know music is my thing? Like, was there something in you that let you know? Where did you start? Like, what? What was it that was inside you that said, "I'm going to do this"? When I was a kid, called "Singing in the Rain," I must have been nine or ten years old. And there's a scene in that movie, if you remember, Kevin, because you're still a young kid compared to me. Uh, in that movie, Gene Kelly, who was the star of the movie, sings the song, Singing in the Rain, in the rain. And he gets on a lamppost, that's that famous thing where he says, I'm singing, in the, and he does this little dance. And I remember leaving that place thinking, that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to sing in the rain and not care whether or not I get wet. I want to be able to dance and sing. That's what I want to do. I want to be in show business. And it didn't matter whether it was movies, Broadway, whatever. I just show business was what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I started a little doo-wop group called the Five Gents. And we would sing in the subway because it had a good echo. 
Now, they were lazy. They didn't want to go and audition for people. So I grabbed my little guitar, and I would go to the top floor of the Brill Building and work my way down. Knock on the door. If it said record company, uh, can I audition? And I go to the next floor. And I was like 15 years old. Finally, I ended up on the sixth floor of a building address called 1650 Broadway, which is the other Brill Building. Mm-hmm. And in that building was these great writers I talked about. And Kirshner, when he first heard me sing, Donnie, he said, you remind me of a young Richie Valens with a little bit of Benny King in you. He said, I have two new writers I want you to meet. He said, they haven't had a hit yet. And he calls in Carol King and Jerry Goffin. Woo. Right? Your favorites, right? Yeah. He says to Carol, Tony, uh, Carol, play Tony your brand new song you just wrote. I think I want him to record it. And she goes, you mean this one? And she plays me, Will You Love Me Tomorrow? Wow. And I go, my God, that's a great song. I'm going to record that. He goes, no, you can't record that. I said, why? He said, because it's a girl song. I said, well, how is this a girl song? He said, listen to the words, Tony. Tonight with words unspoken, you say that I'm the only one. But will my heart be broken when the night meets the morning sun? Is this a lasting treasure or just a moment's pleasure? Can I believe the magic of your size? Will you still love me tomorrow? No 16-year-old boy says that to a girl. (laughs) No. So the Shirelles recorded it. And then Carol and I went into the studio. For a year, she taught me how to sing on the microphone. She taught me how to phrase her and Jerry and I would do all of her demos demos that she recorded for Bobby V like take care of my baby or uh, up on the roof for the drifters I would be the singer on those demos finally came my turn and she arranged and produced a record with Jack Keller and Donnie Kirshner called Halfway to Paradise 16 years old first hit record on epic and that was the beginning of the dream that I had since singing in the rain Wow. So she mentored you. She was. She took the time to show you how to do all this. Yes, she was my professor. I remember in the studio, this may sound silly now, but you'll get it being a singer. I'm I'm on the mic and Jerry Goffin, her husband, comes out and he says, Tony, I want you to sing the word paradise like you have a paradise. A paradise. Oh, like a gambling paradise? Yeah. Like, so so he's saying, don't say halfway to paradise. Say halfway to paradise. Oh, that's amazing. Things like that. When I look back, I think the phrasing, the, 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 how to use the vowel, uh, he would say, remember, man, you got to cross the T. You, you got to understand what you're saying on this record. And they were literally, that was my college education, was to be with them in the studio. Then I meet the two new writers, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde, and they are in the studio with me, Carol, Jerry, the four of us, four of them and me, and I'm cutting their first song that they wrote as writers called Bless You. And as you know, they went on to become Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, as Carol is, and also won the Academy Award for Somewhere Out There. So these four writers 
that starred in the musical Broadway. It's about their life. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Were the part were beautiful to my life. They were my brothers and sisters that cared about me and made me realize my dream to have hit records. It's amazing. And to be surrounded by that kind of talent, and everybody was looking for their first moment. It's incredible. And they went on, of course, to write some of the biggest songs in music. Oh, God, yes. And I, you know something that's interesting, Kevin? I went to England. My first trip was in 1961. I had the number one record in England at that time. It was called Bless You. It was Barry Mann's Tithia. And Half of Paradise was also a hit there. So I'm in England, and I'm 17 years old. And you know and I know that we read trade papers that are only for the industry people to read, like Billboard, Hollywood Report. Those are what industry people read those things. Right. In England, the industry paper was also the public paper. Hmm. So that the young kids who were listening to Carol's songs and Barry's songs and Neil Sedaka's songs in 1961, they were very aware of who played drums on my session, who produced the session, who wrote the songs, versus in the American kids, they were only interested in tearing your shirt off and getting a piece of your scarf or your hair or something. But they weren't into the business. And when I came back from England, I said to Carol, Carol, something very special is going to happen out of England. Because I've had kids 15, 16 years old run up to me for an autograph and say to me, hey, is Carol King writing your next record? Is Gary Chester playing drums on your next record? And I'd look at them and think, they know who played drums on my record? I said, something very special is going to come out of England. And of course, two years later, 63, came the Beatles. Yeah. Yeah. Who were students of and fans of American music. Time fans of Cal and Jerry. As a matter of fact, I remember meeting John Lennon for the first time at a Grammys show. And he walked up to me. I'll never forget, he was wearing a pin, a diamond pin that had Elvis on his lapel. (laughs) <laughs> and he comes walking up to me and he goes, he was referring to my record, Bless You. He goes, Tony, to think we thought Bless You was funky? <laughs> we, both, we both know it wasn't, right? But he said, we thought it was in those days. You know, it was, it, it was interesting that, that he came to see me in Liverpool at one of the theaters I was working when I was on tour there. I mean, that's crazy, you know, how I got to meet the Beatles when they were the Silver Beatles. Unbelievable. Just the people that you've met throughout your life. Oh, my gosh. It's unbelievable, including the Jonas Brothers. Hey, I (laughs) Yes, and they're fans of yours. They grew up with your music. You know what's interesting about your boys is when you think of, uh, for instance, Nick, five Broadway shows already. I'm in show business 60 years. I've done two. Jerry Lewis was in this in art business forever, and he was proud that he did one. Amazing. I know. Your son did five already, not to mention the success in his own individual recording career, plus the Jonas Brothers career. So 
you talk about your show called Legends, you and your wife brought three legends into this world musically. And of course, Frankie's a legend in his own time too. So the truth is, uh, being part of this show that, that talks about, or we'll be talking to legends of the future, to put me in that category, which is what you said to me on the phone, you honor me and put me in a place I never thought I'd ever have anybody think of me as a legend, you know? Well, you are, without a doubt, sir, a legend. Uh, you have seen so much. Very few people have hits as a young kid, a young man, 16 years old, and then a re you work in the industry, which we're going to get to next, and then later you are part of a supergroup. There's no doubt about it. Uh, there, there are, there are groups that have cultural impact, and the group you were a part of had a massive cultural impact that that I was aware of that put you in the top three artists of the '70s. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm very proud of that. It, um, one of the things I'm most proud of is that we were the first multiracial group to ever have a primetime television show. Well, in the times we're living in right now, that says a lot. Yeah, you know, just think, when we went on the air, Kevin, we went on CBS, 8 o'clock, Wednesday nights. We were also the first group, more than a duet, to ever have a show to this day. Hmm. Okay, variety show. Yeah, interesting. So, when I think back to where CBS was at, check this out. Two years before we went on the air, Harry Belafonte kissed Petula Clark, and it was front page news. Oh, my God, Petula Clark kissed a black man on television. Oh, my. Two years before. We came on during the years of All in the Family, which, you know, was a racial mm -hmm. thing. We didn't know what America was going to do when we came on the air. And it's a tribute to Freddie Silverman's CBS. That was courageous at the time to put this Greek Rican and two African-American girls from Detroit at eight o'clock prime time, not knowing what the country was going to do. We were a couple of years after the assassination of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. My wow. gosh, here's the deal. When we went on, we realized that the country was taking a step forward because they accepted us open arms. Yeah, we had a couple of bad letters. We expected that, but nothing like what could have been. And when I look back on that, if there's any one thing that me and Jama Hopkins and Joyce Vincent are proud of, yeah, it's all great that we had the number three most biggest selling records of the 70s. Yes, Billboard's top 100 greatest artists of all time were in that top 100. Yes, we've won all the, the Grammys and the People's Choice Awards and all that stuff. But to think that we accomplished a step forward in the consciousness of the country, that's really something to be proud of. And even though the needs still exist, we made progress because of you guys. And I think that says a lot, and your example and your courage says a lot.
So, Tony, you gave me a story a while back about Carol King and you make me feel like a natural woman. I would love for you to tell our audience that story. Well, it started with a guy named Jerry Wexler who founded Atlantic Records and signed Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin. He's a legend. He's one of the godfathers of rock and roll. He passes us by on 51st Street in New York, and he rolls down the window to his to his uh, limo, and he says to Jerry Goffin and Carol King, hey, Jerry, knowing that Jerry's the lyricist, hey, Jerry, how's this for a title? You make me feel like a natural woman. And we get in the car, we go to Brown Street in Brooklyn, and there's Jerry and Carol after dinner starting to write the song. I would love to be a fly on that wall. Exactly. And I was the fly on that wall, Kevin. Can wow. you imagine? And they start playing this song. And Carol, she starts it. Now they get to a certain part of the song, and Jerry starts getting frustrated. And I'm watching, and I can't figure out what's going on. He's frustrated because he can't come to a line that he wants. He's stuck on a line. And he starts taking the piano keys on the upright and pushing them up and they'd be flying up to the ceiling and he'd get up and he'd storm off i said carol she goes yeah yeah he can get angry when he can't find a line i said angry is putting it lightly he come back i would say 30 minutes he sits down all excited he says carol carol i've got the line i took my soul to the lost and found and you came by and claimed it and I went, holy mackerel. Kevin, I shook my head. Holy mackerel. Then she sits down. Imagine the first time pair of ears to ever hear that song finished with these two attached Ooh. to my head. And she starts to play it. You make me feel. You make me feel. I said, Jerry, you wrote a lyric from the point of you of a woman and you made it work carol said made it work how could he do that other than his genius and that's what jerry mm. goffin was a lyrical genius really and that's when that song was born and i was there at the birth ah uh, see there are songs that i think of that are perfect and that song is perfect perfect to witness it is like watching Picasso paint. Ah, amazing. Well, I want to transition because you, you had your teenage years and hits. Very few people have hits in their teenage years. And that was in that doo-wop era. But that came to a close. And as you transitioned into your young adult life you transitioned into the business side. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Well, like I said earlier, you know, um, the Beatles and the English invasion really put American performers out of work. Hmm. Radio stations were playing Dave Clark Five, Rolling Stones, you know, uh, Beatles, of course, and every act that came out of uh, uh, England. So myself and Gene Pitney and Brian Hyland and those people and they were having hits at Paul Anka in the early 60s, 61, 62, came 63, 64. 
I want to hold your hand. Everything on radio was English, British. Yeah. Now I had to support a family. I got married young, 19 years old. I didn't know what to do. Clive Davis gave me the opportunity to be working for his publishing company at CBS. He became president of CBS and put me as general manager <clears throat> in charge of what's called April Blackwood music, which is CBS music. Okay. What was my job? My job was to sign writers, uh, the writers that were already there, get their songs to artists to record them. I had Laura Nero, I had Chip Taylor who wrote Wild Thing. I signed a guy named Barry Manilow, got his first deal made for him. Uh, uh, I had the Yardbirds. I had all these great songwriters. And you signed those folks. Well, I signed Barry, but we already had James because James was with the Flying Machine, which I inherited when I got to the company. But when I came back to the company, the Beatles had just signed James, so we re-inherited him. James meaning James. Represented his music. James Taylor. With everything that had to do with James's music as a publisher. So there I was, both playing the role of this general manager in charge of the music getting recorded, and also the guy who's signing new artists and new writers. It was a glorious job. It was something I loved every minute of because it was my ear that was able to take a young writer and, and get a group like the Trogs to sing Wild Thing or, wow. to, get, or to get Dionne Warwick to sing, uh, you know, for, for the motion picture or to do... Uh, 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 that signed Barry Manilow to his first record company and produced his first out al- first hit records, you know, his first albums. Then Ron Dante produced it with Clive, took over Arista, and and the, forget it, blew it up. What happened with Barry? So this was a job that was a combination of being being this creative person, but also being the 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 guy like uh, Simon on on American Idol. I, I would give young writers advice on what they should do and then sign them. And it was a great time. So for four years, I worked my way up to vice president. The year that Clyde was making me vice president is when I recorded as a favor, Candida and Knock Three Times as a favor to the producer without them knowing who it was because I didn't want to lose my job. I did it so that those producers could get an advance to pay their rent. This is the truth. Wow. Um, little did I know it become my life again. So what, what happened? Like, how did, did somebody present those songs to you? What happened was I'm sitting in the office, and you know the tokens, right? Lion Sleeps Tonight? Yes, of course. They came into the office with Hank Medris, their, their producer and part of the group. And Hank said to me, Tony, I'm broke. I need, a, I need, I need to, I have a record. Could you help me sell this record? I, I said, how much do you need? He said, $3,000. I hear the record and it's Candida. The same record you heard me record. You know, the same strings, Amazing. same background singers, same track, everything, but a different lead vocalist on it. So I said, I know what, that, what label is right for this. And I sent it. Now, remember, I'm still working for Clive Davis, right? Right, at CBS. And I'm moonlighting now. I'm about to moonlight. So I give the record to Bell. 
They turn the record down under one condition where they buy it. What's that? We love the record. We love the song. We love the track. We love the production, but we don't like the lead singer. I said, oh, Hank, you got to get a new lead singer. He said, Tony, you do it. I said, Hank, I can't do that. I work for Clive Davis. I, I can't do that. He said, Tony, I'm broke. So they would have gotten their $3,000 as long as they were able to change the lead singer. So I said, Hank, Medris, just go get a lead singer. And he says, like I told you just a minute ago, he said, Tony, you used to do Carol's demos. It's like a drifters-like record, something candida. Sounds like the drifters would have cut it. Why don't you put your voice on it? I said, Hank, I can't do that. I work for Columbia Records. That's, that's <laughs> moonlighting. I'll get fired. He said, Tony, I'm broke. I'm broke. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I have an hour tonight. You have a studio available tonight? Yeah. I'll go in. If I can cut this song in an hour, I'll, you can put my vocal on it. But do not, do not call it Tony Orlando. Call it Joe Schmo and the Nail Biters. Call it anything you want. But don't call that record Tony Orlando. I don't want to lose my job. I go in the studio. Now, Kev, you know something called cell sync, right? So mm -hmm. in the audience, that means I could put my voice on one line at a time. You stop the tape, next line. Stop the tape, next line. This is how we cut Candida. He's in the booth. All right, play it, Hank. What's the first line? Stars won't come out if they know that you're about. Say it again. Stars won't come out if they know that you're about. Hang on. Stars won't come out if they know that you're about. Play the intro. Stars won't come out if they know that you're about. Okay, what's the next line? Because <laughs> they couldn't match the glow of your eyes. Because they couldn't match the glow. Okay, okay, I'll hear my first line, right? Yeah, okay. Because they couldn't make, play the first line. I hear myself. Cars won't come out if they know that you're about. Because they couldn't match the glow of your eyes. What's the next line? We did that whole record one line at a time. Okay, we go home. Three months later, it becomes a million seller, number one. I don't want to tell Clive. I don't want to tell the industry. I don't want to get fired. Hank, I don't even have a deal with him. I have no percentage on the record, nothing. I don't know why he named it Dawn. I find out later it was because the head of the record company's daughter was named as Dawn. Maybe he gets special preference. <laughs> wait, wait. So you have a number one record. Your name is not on it. Right. You were not paid anything. Right. How does that happen? I was doing a favor, and there I was, committing the favor. So he said to me, I'll give you one cent a record. I said, okay, in the beginning, okay, I'll take it. One cent a record. So we signed the deal. I make a one cent a record. Comes back to my office. Tony, I need you to do the backup record. Candida went to number one. I said, Hank, please, please. Don't do this to me again. He said, Tony, listen to this song. It's called Knock Three Times. I said, Hank, listen to me. I'm going to go in and cut that record because nobody in America is going to buy a record about a guy knocking on a ceiling and knocking on a pipe. The only place you have a ceiling and a pipe to knock on is in Brooklyn. That record's <laughs> not going to sell in Kansas City. So, okay, I'll do it for you. 
that record sells four million records. And is a smash all over the world. All over the world. Now Dawn, by the way, four million domestic domestically only. So now that Dawn group, that studio manufacture group with this lead singer, has sold six million records. Hold on. And are you getting one cent a record on these? Yeah. So almost nothing. Almost nothing. So now I go to myself. I go back to singing in the rain, right? Mm-hmm. And I go, I gotta, this is a time to step into my dream. So I go back to Clive. I went to him nervously and I said, Clive, I'm so sorry. I have to quit. You're about to make me vice president. And I'm just, I, I, I got to be an artist. He goes, I know you want to be, you're Dawn, right? <laughs> and I went, you, you know that I'm Dawn? He goes, Tony, that's the worst kept secret in show business. He said, tell <laughs> you what you do. You go follow your dream. This is the truth. You go follow your dream, Clive said. If the dream doesn't continue, you can always come home. How amazing is that? Never forgot him for that. And recently when I did his Zoom cast with Richard Weitz, he brought that story up because he knew that was a turning point in a man's life, me. I had the road go like this, but I was one of the few guys that if the road, this fork didn't work, he allowed me the opportunity to know I can come back to that part of the road. And how few people would allow something like that? Exactly. Exactly. I think that's part of what makes Clive Davis Clive Davis is. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And I mean, he really, he really went to bat for me. And he was proud of my work because, you know, oddly enough, when I think back to my relationship with Clive Davis, Kevin, when I signed that contract at 16, back then when we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. the lawyer who sat at the table with my mom, because I was only 16, to sign that contract was a young lawyer in Clive Davis. Wow. Who knew that that lawyer would become president of, of Columbia Records to give me my job when I needed it most. And then how God had it that he leaves Columbia and he goes to Bell Records, the label I was on with Dawn, changes the name to Arista, and now he's my boss again. Amazing. It's amazing, right? I've seen that several times with my sons. David Massey, I walk into a man named, wonderful man named Bob Bolin, and Bob says, I want to introduce you to David Massey. Nick sang, signed him, and at 10, now 11 years old, he has his first recording contract. But that record got caught. It was, you know, caught in a vacuum. And then they found out there were brothers, and it transitioned with David and others. It transitioned into the group. Later, when the group broke up, David Massey was there again, signed Nick as a solo artist, and all Nick's solo stuff was back with David Massey. Isn't that something? Yeah. You know, there's always one person, right, Kevin? There's always one person that coaches you through. It always seems to be that way. And, and that person finds himself in your life over and over again. Clive is one of those people who, who uh, I, I got to tell you, I, him and Don Kirshner, I owe them my whole life, really. 
it, it's amazing, and I've seen it myself. Uh, and part of that, too, goes back to who you are. I'm sure if you were not the person you are, they may not have been as encouraging and as supportive, but you are one of the best people I've met in the entire industry. Oh, thank you, Ken. One of the most successful and also genuinely a good person. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. So, but I'm intrigued here, and I have to go here. At that point in your life, you're watching Candida, and for those of you that are listening, I, I think it would be hard for me to explain to a streaming world, hard for me to explain to a TikTok world how big Candida was, and then following it with knock three times. I grew up in North Carolina. We didn't knock for somebody to hear up or down. We lived in a mill, a cotton mill village, and you know it was a it was a tiny little area, but the song resonated somehow everywhere around the world. Around the world. And you were handed two hit songs by a hit writer who was struggling. But as it took off under a separate name, and you have just a small piece, the smallest piece of this, what was running through your mind? Well, I was thinking, okay, this is the beginning of a new beginning. It was the beginning of the dream again. And it wasn't as important to me. It's interesting when I think back. It wasn't as important to me how much I was going to make off the record. What was important to me was that I was going to reach the dream. Yeah. I, that's what I wanted to hear. And that's, I could almost anticipate knowing you, yeah. how right your priorities were there. Yeah, it wasn't about the money. And I don't even see regret now in your eyes that you didn't participate in what probably millions of dollars of revenue and opportunity. You light up looking and talking about the opportunity. Oh, how I wish some of these young artists could know that. And little did I know, I hadn't even backed into the biggest record of my life with Yellow Ribbon yet. God had planned for me... Remember, Yellow Ribbon was the theme song to my TV show. It, it brought me to 37 different countries. It was the one song that, to this day, look at what the two guys that wrote it, but I was the mailman that delivered the letter. <laughs> the two guys that wrote the song, Erwin Levine and Larry Brown, they had no idea. They wrote a song that in 1973, when I welcomed home the POWs with Bob O in Dallas at the Cotton Bowl, here were these 500 plus brave men who were tortured beyond words. And they're singing the chorus to my song oh. amongst 70,000 people. Then the next time that song becomes a symbol again, is the 444 days when the hostages were held in Iran and they came home and the yellow ribbons were strewn not only on Pennsylvania Avenue, but it was put on the space shuttle. Right. And around the Super Bowl 
in Texas, mm. in Houston, and a, an actual yellow ribbon around the city of New York to Amazing. welcome home our hostages that were held in Iran. Then again, these guys that wrote the song had no idea that it would become the symbol for Desert Storm, Kevin. And then again, it becomes a, a symbol for those in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you see that in the back of every truck supporting <clears throat> our troops with that yellow ribbon. The demonstrators in Hong Kong who are demonstrating for democracy and freedom to keep their freedom from China, from communist China, what theme song did they choose? What record do they play at every rally? Mm -hmm. Tony Orlando and Dawn, Yellow Ribbon, is the symbol, the literal logo of the demonstrators in Hong Kong. When I think back that on a rainy afternoon, Kevin, I went in to cut this song that I didn't think even was going to be a hit. Oh, it was it was more than a hit. When I think I was a young boy and my uncle was in Vietnam and our family had a yellow ribbon tied around the tree right. at our house. And every day I would go out and think about him coming home. Wow. Sing the song as a young man. Wow. Watch you perform it on TV. Right. And the day he came home, it was a yellow ribbon waiting for him, along with yellow ribbons all over our neighborhood and neighborhoods across America and around the world. And what's beautiful about the song is it isn't a celebration of war. It's a celebration of our young men and our young women, our veterans. And you've devoted your life to caring for veterans. I... I they tell me that since 1973, that song and the performances that we've done for free for veterans may have raised somewhere between 200 and 300 million dollars on behalf of veterans. Yep. Unbelievable. Yeah. The first responders and essential workers in New York City, which was the epicenter of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. If you go to out throughout New York, you'll see yellow ribbons tied everywhere on behalf of them. So now it's taken on a whole new symbol of hope and love and homecoming for, the, for those of us in quarantine, for those of the, who, are, who are still in hospital care uh, with this horrible mm -hmm. virus. And to think that that song, that symbol now, has become part of the fabric of some sort of way of releasing your love to say, okay, welcome home. Yeah. We love you. Uh, hope. The two writers who wrote that, Larry Brown and and Erwin Levine, Erwin just passed away. But Larry calls me every day. And he just says to me, Tony, what a blessing this has been. Yeah. What, a, what a, an incredible thing to write a song that has meant that for so many years. True. I mean, and right now, uh, I'm, I'm part of a, you know about this, um, Tribute to Valor Foundation, yeah. which is um, founded by a Medal of Honor recipient, Gary Little. And, and he took the six core values that are part of the values that the, you know, that the uh, Medal of Honor recipients 
live by, those six core mm. values. And we bring them to young people around the world. Before the pandemic, we had already brought it to 40,000 young people and building ever since. But we have now a Yellow Ribbon Foundation, the uh, Tribute to Valor Yellow Ribbon Foundation, where we're giving a scholarship to some family in New York City and in LA and in Vegas right now for those first responders and essential workers' families to go to college. So beautiful. And who would have known? I mean, I, I, I've i written some songs, a few of them with my kids, um, that have done well. Oh, yeah, you have. <laughs> but there are specific moments in my life that I remember that are so literally seared into my memory, Tie a Yellow Ribbon is one of those songs. And that- A great story one day, Denise. She said, do you know, one time Kevin and I and the boys, when they were real young, we were driving through Vegas and we saw Tony Orlando was working in Vegas and Kevin said, hey, we gotta go see that show. That Tie <laughs> a Yellow Ribbon, the boys are going, who, who, what? Who? <laughs> So Jenny, my daughter's right here. Where were we at the first time we saw the boys in a restaurant in L.A.? Uh, and you said, there's the Jonas Brothers. And what was the record they had out then? I think 2000. Year, year 3000 just came out. Year 2000 record? Year 3000. Year 3000. So Jenny's sitting with me. I think it was at a California, California Pizza Kitchen. And there the boys were eating. And she says to me, Dad, Dad, those are the Jonas Brothers. They have the biggest record in the country, the year 3000. I said, you want me to go? She goes, don't, don't go over and talk to them. No, please, don't, don't shoot. Don't embarrass me. So I let them go. And the next time I had a chance to not let them go was with you, Papa. And you got her to meet the boys. <laughs> well, had I known you were sitting in California Pizza Kitchen, I would have been the one. My wife would have been, and my kids would have been holding me back because your impact has been truly monumental. What you have lived, I, I love that we touched and went back on, you're making a penny a record, but you're happy. Right. I think that there's, there's some great stuff there. Once, uh, you know what I believe, Kevin? Once you're seduced by the industry's guidelines. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for making a living. Yeah. And I'm all for making as much money as you can. But and money drives product. Mm -hmm. Product never succeeds. But when product drives product, money follows. Yeah. So when you do, I think you agree with me, right? When you do a record and you don't think about Oh, this is number one. You said, this was a great record. We did a great job. The, we know it's a great song, a great record. And then we put it out there and the money comes. That's right. Once we start putting money in front of the creative process, usually it doesn't happen. Right. And I've seen it already in my life so many times. And it's such a temptation for the artist to go grab the money yeah. And sometimes, you know, when, when my sons did um, Love Bug, 
And I turned around to my kids and I went, this one is perfect. And they said, wow, you've never said perfect. Because I, I'm a musician. I'm a songwriter. I, I, I sing. And you're a great songwriter and a heck of a singer. I can't stand you sometimes. <laughs> well, I believe me, I'm not you. I could never sing like you. Me, I, you blow my mind sometimes, man. You're amazing. I turned around to my kids and I went, this one is perfect. It went to radio, peaked at 38, but it, it, it was at a time where it was the radio was going a different direction. They weren't playing bands. All over the world, when they go into that song, it is this massive Beatlesque type moment. There are videos online from the Philippines and from Eastern Europe. It's the Yellow Submarine. And it has this moment that for a lot of their fans was their first head-banging moment, was the, the breakdown of that song where the guitars kick in. And, but I knew in, that, I knew in the studio, this one is going to live well. This is going... Rolling Stones called it the quintessential Jonas Brothers song later on. And money followed. You know, the right things happened because it found its path. It wasn't radio, but it found its path and is a fan favorite. When you analyze the Jonas Brothers, step aside, don't be daddy for a minute, okay? Don't be daddy for a second. You and I have been in the business a long time. When you analyze that group, mm -hmm. that's about the closest success story to the Beatles success story in our industry, if you really analyze it. Hmm. If you look at their body of work as writers, producers, vocalists, group experience, solos, you had George, you had Paul, you had John, and then they did something the Beatles didn't do. They came back together right. again, which everybody wanted the Beatles to do, and everybody wanted the Jonas Brothers to do, and they did. And what happens? They go to Brazil, or they go to something, and it's not, there's a hundred thousand people. That's right. Not a thousand, not 10,000, not 20,000, a hundred thousand people. Your sons have accomplished truly what. Really, when you think about it, it's even bigger than the Beatles' success because the Beatles' success, we had a smaller venue opportunity. Really and truly, we had no, we had no uh, uh, internet. Mm -hmm. We had no, you know, we had three television networks. That was it. We had venues. I mean, they broke the line in doing stadiums. Your kids can't do stadiums. They'll do two, two, three shows at a stadium. It's, it's amazing that you being a Beatle fan and a fan of that period of time made that happen for your boys. Because you know, you were the godfather of their success. Not only their father, but the creative father of their success. Well, there were a lot of influences, but Oh, no, you, you know, can, and I can even hear your voice on some of the records, by the way. <laughs> well, yes, early, early on, uh, I was able to, to help them out. Forgive me for not getting the title. Uh, eyes, the song. Um, when You Look Me in the Eyes. Come on. 
you wrote that. <laughs> when I went to see the boys at Mohegan Sun, that audience sang that song every single line. I love, I, I love, you know, my mark is there playing the piano and lyrically on that song. But what I love is what I know you love. Looking around to the audience. Yeah. And seeing them give back. The, uh, I watch my kids, but I'm just circling, seeing impact and love. And they're sharing love to their fans, and the fans are pouring love back. And that happens. That's, that's your show is the same way. But I, I Incredible melody that is, though, Ken. When the boys released uh, Sucker... I was watching the response, as I always do, and my wife was filming me, and I'm just scrolling through the comments. I called my sons, and I said, this is big. And then I called them back a day later, and I said, um, I know you're planning a tour. What size venue? <laughs> and they're like, well, we're waiting for some response right now. And I called specifically, I called Nick, and I said, Nick, I don't know at this point what an underplay is for you. A stadium might be an underplay, and I don't know that this has ever existed before. I, a comeback of this level, maybe, maybe the Bee Gees with Saturday Night Fever. No, never. But I, I personally have not seen it. Sorry, there is none. Kevin. But you know who else I brought up? My friend. And I said, here's a man who had young success and then came back with an iconic run. And you did. I would love for you to talk to us about that transition into the group, Tony Orlando and Don, and that groundbreaking show that was a precursor of, of what's needed still today. Uh, it, it opened a line. It opened a door. It, it educated this young man who grew up in the South, uh, gave me a love of music, and impacted, especially for a kid that loved all things pop and all things theater. It was this great combination of theater and pop. Yeah. Tell us how that happened and walk us through what brought you to that stage. Well, when I met Telma and Joyce, when I talked to them about going on the road, they also had been working at Motown. Most of the background vocals you heard it, like heard it through the grapevine, that was Telma mm -hmm. with Marvin Gaye. That was Telma and Joyce and her sister Pam on um, still the same with with Bob Seeger. That right, was right. them on Ain't No Mountain High. That was them on Shaft with Isaac Hayes. It was <laughs> someone who said, shut your mouth to Isaac Hayes on that classic record. And I knew that we were unique and very charismatic and had a chance to play in television. And I saw in an article when Yellow Ribbon came out, I saw an article that Dean Martin's show was the last they had given up on variety shows. And mm -hmm. I said to Telma and Joyce, you know what? We're going to fill that vacuum. And I purposely aimed our act 
to become an entertainment act, entertainers, as well as a recording act. Which and there is a difference. There's a difference, yeah. And so I would, I remember the first comedy bit we ever did was we were doing Hit the Road Jack in the show at the Copacabana in New York. Yellow Ribbon was a big hit, not three times a big hit. Now we're at the Copa, and remember the record was Hit the Road Jack, and don't you, don't come, you come back, back no more. No well, who more, do you think no. Jack was? <laughs> so Jack comes walking in, and of course they do their humor on Jack, okay? I walked off and I said, you know, Talma, you know, Joyce, this is the beginning of our television career. Hmm. Sure enough, we go to Westbury Music Theater and sitting in the audience is the president of CBS who came thinking he was going to see Sonny and Cher. Sonny and Cher got sick. Cher got sick. They canceled the date. It became us and the fifth dimension. He's sitting in the audience going, where the heck is Cher? Where is Sonny? And this group comes out. Dawn. Wasn't even Tony Lane with Dawn yet. And we do our show, and I'm roaming the audience. And so he comes backstage and he says, Tony, my name is uh, Mr. Silverman. I'm the president of, of CBS. You know when you run through the audience and you talk to people, you think you could do that on television? I said, sure. He said, well, how could we rehearse that? How would we block that for TV? I said, what do you mean block it? He said, well, how would we rehearse it for cameras? I said, well, how do you rehearse a football game? You follow the ball. Say <laughs> the ball. And we shook hands. And that was the beginning of our television life. He's the one that said, we're calling the show Tony, Orlando, and Dawn. Wait, that was where it changed? That's where it changed. Because on Yellow Ribbon, if you look at the label, it says Dawn, then little letters featuring Tony Orlando. But he is the one who changed the name, full out, and flipped it to Tony, Orlando, and Dawn. And you know something, Kevin? I remember the first time I ever walked on the street after that show aired for the first time. And a little lady walks up to me. She goes, oh, I love your show. But tell me something. Which one's Tony? Which one's Orlando? And which one's Dawn? <laughs> he thought it was Tony, Orlando, and Dawn. I said, oh my God, it confused America. Well, it didn't happen that way, thank God. But that show was on for four years. So I had a chance to work with everybody from Lucille Ball to Jackie Gleason, who in their day, the Giants, Giants, to Sammy Davis, to Sinatra. All of them did that show. I was uh, I was uh, a fan of every one of those people, and to think here I am, living the dream, literally. I had this dream when I was ten years old on my rooftop in New York City that someday I would be in show business, and here I am working with legends. Your show is called Legends. Here I am working with the legends of the industry. Then, so I worked with everyone from Jackie Wilson to Jackie Gleason. Amazing. So amazing. You know, there there's two performers that I've come across, and I remember vividly this impression, that they their humility and their joy in it was disarming. One, fairly modern, 
Garth Brooks. If you see Garth Brooks in concert, you see a man that is like, really? Like, and, and he says, like, wow, you really make me feel so good I could go all night. The other performer that strikes me that way is you, my friend. Well, you put me in some category because I'm going to tell you what I've told people. And they're dis with all the people I've worked with Jerry Lewis, Sammy Davis, Frank Sinatra, you name it, Jackie Wilson, Beatles, you name them. The one performer that I can tell you did the greatest performance I ever saw in my life was Garth Brooks. And when I say that to people, they go, What? I said, Let me tell you something. I saw this man walk on the stage at the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas not long ago mm -hmm. with his guitar, no rhythm section, and for two hours, he got 10 standing ovations. You saw it, right? And so you know I'm not lying. And he'd get out there, and I'd go, wait a minute, hang on a second. He's doing who? He's doing Elton. He's doing James, James Taylor. He's doing what? He's doing Paul Simon. He's doing, and then he gets to him. He gets to him and does one of his hits. The rest was a tribute to everybody that made him love this business. And I walked up to him and I said, Garth, I'm going to tell you something. I've never seen an entertainer do what you did tonight. Hmm. Oh, Tony, no, no. So while you're saying this, Kevin, so help me God, I'm not lying to you. You're the first person so far that's ever said to me exactly what I said to Garth. And you probably said it to Garth as well. So for you to put me in that category, thank you, sir. That's a big honor. Well, it isn't ironic that I'm saying that about two of the best-selling artists of all time. He is the best-selling single solo artist of all time. But that humility, that love of his fans, and true, genuine appreciation for them, that entertainment element in the show, that combination is what I see in you. And it's the same in a small room, and I've been in a small room with Garth as he allowed his daughter, like you, to meet my kids and when I said, would you like to, he was like, oh, no, this is about my daughter. The same thing you did, even down to the way we met, was similar. Wow. Um, pretty, pretty amazing to me. Speaking of those guests, you told me a Frank Sinatra story once. Yeah. And I was thinking through what advice, you know, was important for you. And you mentioned Frank Sinatra and a discussion you had. If you're comfortable, would you share that story with us? It's a couple. So are you talking about when the, at the Dais story at the Friars Club? The, 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 either story, please. Okay. I think this is what you're talking about. Because it's typical of you to hold on to this story. So I get a call from a guy named Chili, who's Frank Sinatra's friend. My father, Greek who was a furrier, used to make mink coats for this guy. His name is Jilly, Frank Sinatra's best friend. Calls me up. Now, I hadn't had yellow ribbon yet. I just had Candida, not three times, but I just left Clive. Mm. So Jilly calls me and he says, Tony, would you like to meet Frank Sinatra tonight? 
And I said, oh my God. He goes, you have a tuxedo? I said, yeah. He said, you got a red hanky? Red hanky? Yeah. Frank only wears a red hanky. I said, okay. Wear your red hanky. I said, okay. Meet me at the Friars Club tomorrow night. I go to the Friars Club. And there's Frank Sinatra, everybody listening. And Kevin. Standing in a room with a microphone. And he's about to line up the guests that will be sitting on the dais honoring of all people, Gene Kelly. Remember? Remember, remember my dream, right? Oh, yeah. So now I'm, I'm standing there, and there's Frank, and he goes like this. He's lining up everybody so they can sit properly when they reach the dais. It's a double dais, all right? So he says, Richard, Liz, that's Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor. Stand over here behind me. Sammy, stand behind them. Mickey, that's Mickey Rooney. Stand behind them. Uh, tell you what, Marlon, that's Marlon Brando. Stand behind them. Gregory, well, you, Gregory Peck, will you stand behind them? And he goes through this, he's going through every major movie star you ever heard of in your life. When right. he finishes, he goes, Tony Orlando, follow me. Which puts me in front of Liz Taylor and Richard Burton. I, I don't know what's going on. So as we're walking towards the dais, I whisper, Mr. Sinatra, Mr. Sinatra, this is wonderful, but why are you doing this? He says, shut up, I'll tell you later. We get up to the dais. He says to Telly Savalas, Telly, go down to the end and get Tony's card, put it right behind me on the dais. Telly Savalas says, yes, boss. He changes the cards. I am now sitting behind, so this is me, and this is Sinatra. I'm sitting behind him. He's on the podium, the host. All these people on the dais. I'm right behind him. Show is over. Mr. Sinatra, I can't believe you did this. Why did you do that? He says, well, let me ask you a question. Who's hosting tonight? I said, you are, sir. Right. Where are everybody's eyes? On you, sir. Right. Who is sitting directly behind me? I am, sir. Who is in direct view of everybody's eyes because you're sitting right behind me? I said, I am, sir. He said, who is the new kid on the block? I said, I am, sir. Well, welcome to show business. That's how we treat the new kid on the block. And here's the, here's the thing I love about that, Kevin. In your son's world today, I won't name the performers, but there's something that happens today that would have never happened back then. The rule back then was one performer never laid down another performer, never put down another performer. The business is too hard. You help that performer. You, 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 you nurture that young performer. You teach that young performer. But when I see fights going on on internets between entertainers, big names for the world to see, it breaks my heart. Because that is, was a rule in the business back then that made it possible for that story to happen. Well, one thing I hope for this show is that the audience that knows my children and the other acts that I've worked with and the people that know the Tony Orlandos and other guests that are legends, new and old, 
we'll hear in this TikTok generation, in the whatever the new streaming format is, in this constantly transforming business side or delivery side, the hustle, the heart, the prioritization of good and the right things that they'll hear it for this new generation. So this 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 story perfectly illustrates several things. One, the fact that Frank Sinatra called you over, you weren't a threat. In fact, he lent you his strength, and you've had a career of lending your strength to others. It's it's an amazing example that I think the young generation, the, the new generation of artists could learn from. There's a part of that story I've never told you. I've never told it on the air. But it's in the Broadway play. A play about my life coming to Broadway. It's called Rooftop Dreams. And in that story, after Freddie Prinze died, who was my brother, my youngest brother, not an actual blood brother, but like my youngest brother, he died before my eyes. I watched this 22-year-old with his wife and his mom and his dad pass away. It was a terrible, shocking news when it happened. Yeah, and the last pair of lips that kissed his lips was these right here. Mm. It was the first time I ever saw someone pass away. And in that same year, I lost my sister and my grandfather was the father figure to me. And I crumbled, I crashed, I had a breakdown. To such a degree where I had it, I literally committed myself to a hospital to get well. Now in those days, they didn't have rehabs. You walked into a hospital, you walked into a crazy house with, with bars on the windows and people wore paper clothes so you wouldn't kill yourself and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, had to stay 72 hours by law. We couldn't leave. It's the longest 72 hours I have in my life. When I left that hospital, Frank Sinatra called my, my then accountant, David Goddard, who was his accountant, and said, tell Tony I want him to recuperate in my apartment at the Waldorf Astoria. I recuperated four weeks in Frank Sinatra's home in New York City. Never did he call me, never did he come to see me until I was well enough to receive him. He wow. came to that floor, the 33rd floor at the Waldorf Astoria apartments and he hugged me and he said, welcome back boy, let's get started again. That's a true story. Beautiful. Yeah. And you took that and carried it to a lifetime of people that you've done the same for. I love you, Kevin. I love your wife, Denise. I love and respect your boys. Your boys, you know what they are? Yeah, they're stars. More importantly, they're a tribute to you and your wife because they've grown up to be the gentleman that Sinatra was. They've grown up to be that kind of heart. They are those kind of men. They're not selfish. They're not conceited. They still give time to Jenny. When Jenny shows up, she's like a sister. They're special. And I just want you to know before I leave this 
stage that we're on, your first show, you have legends in your family. But in my opinion, you're the most important legend. You're a dad, a great dad, respectable, and your kids are a tribute to you and Denise. Thank you, my friend. I can't think of a better first guest than you. We will be lifetime friends. We'll share eternity, loving music, loving each other, loving our God. But I just really do thank you. Uh, I'll never forget the impact of your music, your life, and this this time you honor me with this. Uh, and I, I, it's going to have impact, I know. Thank you, my friend. Huge. Your show is going to be, you better prepare yourself because you see, you have the, you're the one guy that can sit in a chair and talk to legends because you created three of them. And so you have the complete background to hold that show. And everybody who, and to think that you think of me as a legend, it's an honor, but everybody who you and I think of as a legend is going to do this show. Carol, and Clive, the rest of them, all of them, they're all going to bring, bring them on. And you know what's going to happen? The audience that watches us, they're going to be the benefactors of all these stories. And some young performer somewhere is going to say, you know, Kevin, I was watching that day you were talking to Carol King, and man, that changed my life. I love you. Love you. Love you, Jenny. Love you guys. Love to Franny. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the legendary I Lived It podcast. Take some time and rate our show, and we look forward to having you back again.